Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatu So. And I'm Ann Friedman. I actually am very, very interested in today's show topic. We're talking about money and feelings and money and relationships. Hi, Ann Friedman. Comment Hello. <laughs> Comment ça va? Bonjour. <laughs> you are trolling me. This is, this is going to be the great troll of our lives. Uh, how you doing over there? <laughs> it's been a trying uh, last two days for you and me. Like we're, oh my we're, God. Still, we're still standing. Behind the scenes, I just want everyone to know that we have been plagued by technical difficulties this week, which is not really a new experience for us, but like over time, we've kind of gotten better. And this week was just like a, wow, all kinds of gear failure, user error, like everything going wrong. Yeah. Mercury and lemonade. It's still oh my god. Don't even get me started. <laughs> Today, though, we're talking about money and feelings and money and relationships. Man, I just, I'm already like, uh, I'm already shook. I'm already shook. Okay, well, I'm going to I'm gonna ask you, like, first, the kind of fun and easy version of this, which is, when do you feel rich? Man, that's such a good rich question. Rich is a feeling, truly. Because rich, <laughs> rich is 100% a feeling. I don't know if you saw this... Um, interactive New York Times thing a couple of weeks ago that was basically asking like, are you rich? It was like a really well done quiz because it accounted for your feelings. It was just like, well, it was like, what's your income, right? And then also like, what do you think rich is? Obviously, like you're ranked by your actual like income in the world, but you are also your feelings about like whether you're rich or not are definitely influenced by what you think a lot or not a lot of money is. Yeah, it's funny. I actually didn't see the New York Times thing, but someone recently sent me um, a quiz, which I will link to. It essentially like tells you how much of your income you could give away without even changing your position in like what percentile you are in terms of global wealth, which I thought was really good because there are all kinds of statistics about how essentially people who are more likely to be living paycheck to paycheck or are more in need of the money they have are more likely to give a higher percentage away. And I thought that was like a really interesting check as well on like your perceptions of wealth or what you were able to give. So it's like not the same quiz, but I I, I had a similar I had a similar online interactive experience recently. <laughs> right. And so like, okay, back to your question for me, I think that I feel rich anytime a problem arises that I am able to throw money at. Mm. Like today, I'm having all these problems with my computer and that's not a problem I can throw money at immediately. So that made me feel not rich today at the Apple right. store, right? But um uh, I had a similar like gear failure recently and I was like, okay, I can buy a new recorder. That's something that's like easy to do. Or, um, you know, I, I have like 17 errands to run, but there's only 24 Beyonce hours in the day. If I can, one of those things can get taken off my hands and somebody else can do it, whether it is, you know, like a, a grocery service delivery or having somebody like pick up my dry cleaning or whatever. I'm always like, this is how I feel rich. 
Oh my God. I had a revelation about that recently. I was helping a friend hang some shelves or like one of our agenda items was hang some shelves. And when I was like, oh wait, we actually could afford to like pay a handy person to come hang these while we do some other equally important item from the to-do list. I felt rich in that moment for sure. So I'm feeling this. Right. Because I feel that the difference between me and people that I consider very wealthy is that they either have a lot of support or they can devote their time not to uh, like running, you know, like their own self. So I'm always like, yeah, I'm like, this is what rich people can like. They can just buy outsourcing all sorts of tasks. And it feels like a huge extravagance to me that I have someone who cleans my house. Mm -hmm. Whenever I come home and everything has been organized and the house is not a mess that I left it in, I'm really, really, really grateful that that is a kind of support that I can afford. Totally. It's totally in line with the kind of support that you're talking about. Totally. And And it's also like, honestly, like really transformed my mental health. Obviously, like when I was sick, I needed someone to like, clean my house because I couldn't do it and then it's just like a routine that I've kept up for a long time now and I was like well yeah great like this is now I know I have to work hard enough that I can always afford this because it like makes me happy I also feel very uh generally like I feel like it's an indulgence that I um that I can smell the way that I want to smell. Like my, my idea of a rich person is someone who smells very good and doesn't wear socks with their loafers. And anytime I can be like an approximation of that person, I'm like, hell yeah. Your, your house smells better than most physical spaces I have ever been in. Like truly it is, is it is an experience of wealth for me to inhale deeply when I cross the threshold of your home. Like, so I can't even imagine what it's like to to live there full time. (laughs) You know me, I just, I want to live like my space is a hotel or like a hotel that I respect. There's just like a lot of feelings that are tied into that. And then I, you know, because at the end of the day, I'm like, I am definitely more blessed than uh, most people. I think that's true. I make an, you know, I make an income that means that I can afford a lot of those things. But when I think about, you know, in the grand scheme of like generational wealth, I have nothing. And also I, you know, I'm like, I got a lot of bills. Like I support a lot of people. And so It's so interesting, like the psychology of like what makes you feel good. Cause you know, I've told you this before. I just feel like a nine-year-old with a rich dad. So I'm like, can I go to a Beyonce concert? Yeah, definitely. Like I have Beyonce concert money. I don't have money for like more than that. (laughs) So Well, maybe if you you upped your Depop selling game, you could have more. (laughs) Damn, I'm going to have to outsource my Depop store now. Damn, (laughs) damn, damn, damn. Um, What about you? When do you feel rich? I mean, it's an interesting question because I definitely relate to the the feeling of being able to pay for something that I am like physically able to do myself um, or maybe like competent enough to do myself. But like I just I don't have the time or it's something that like I don't want to spend my time doing like that feels wealthy. The idea of financially being able to reclaim my time that feels extremely rich but then like more on a body level feeling I never feel richer than when I am like extremely well moisturized wearing a nice robe maybe in a hotel that I like got a last minute deal on or something but that feels like above (laughs) above my price point norm come on over come over come on over I mean listen I'm essentially describing the experience of sleeping over at your house (laughs) which (laughs) Which is free ninety nine for for me. The emotional uh, toll on you is probably a little bit different, but um, but yeah. So so to answer it like on a true feeling level of like when does my body feel rich? It is like it is that like a post spa kind of feeling. It is not unrelated to that idea of 
I got to do something luxurious with my time because I am wealthy enough to not have to work around the clock, which meant I got to take this time for relaxation, which is, I mean, I know um, Jenny O'Dell and I talked about that in this interview that I did with her a few weeks ago on the show. I mean, probably more than a few weeks ago now, what is time? But I do think that like one of the unfortunate things about living in like accelerated capitalist America is like time is actually a luxury now. And like, not just a thing we say, but like a, a privilege afforded to, to the people who are relatively rich. And so it's interesting that I understand that both intellectually and like when I think about how do I feel wealth in my body, it is about that. Like usually I have taken time on a beach, in a spa, away from my daily grind. It just brings up so many feelings. And I remember you saying also previously that sometimes like you'll buy something at the grocery store that makes you feel rich. Oh my God. When I don't check the label, like, or like if I don't check the price on something expensive, or if I buy myself like a super duper treat when I don't have like company coming over and I don't have like a reason, I'm just like, no, I just want to eat this delicious thing. I also feel rich then. That's true. I'm like, I have a fancy yogurt that I like a lot. And anytime I'm like, you know what? I'm just getting the yogurt. When I go to the grocery store for just one thing, that also feels like an extravagance. Mm. Um, and I think also just like having flowers in my space. Anytime I like buy flowers for myself, I'm like, wow. It's never like very expensive, but it always makes me feel like, wow, this is an upgrade I should be looking into more often. Right. Because unlike something like even an expensive food item is a you are getting nutrients and sustenance from it, right? Like you have to eat a meal that day. Why does, why not make it a fancy one? But like flowers are like one of these pure, it is just for your aesthetic enjoyment or maybe your olfactory enjoyment. You know, it is not something that has any kind of practical quote unquote justification. And that is extremely luxurious. So many feelings. Um, (laughs) The other angle on money and feelings, especially as it relates to the kinds of things that we talk about on this show all the time, is how it comes up in interpersonal relationships. And, you know, people will say all the time, it's like a trope about like romantic partnership, that money is one of these things that like will, will drive couples apart. Or like if people don't talk about it in their relationship, it'll become like this source of difficulty and fester. But I think that is also true for friendship. I mean, I think it's definitely true for friendship. It's just that in friendship, you can pretend to never talk about money, right? It's like if you are in a romantic relationship with someone or, you know, you're like parents and children, money is an inevitable topic that you'll have to deal with whether you want to deal with it or not. But with friends, everybody can just pretend that everything is okay. And or, you know, and it's also like a very, uh, you know, society says that it's very impolite to talk about. And so... You know me, I'm the impolite friend. I think it's really important to talk to your friends about money. The thing that you said about how you are kind of not forced to talk about it in the same way in friendship is is true, but also not true. I mean, the way that like, at least like my life is inter- intertwined with my friends is it's not overt in the sense of like, we pay a gas bill together, maybe, but it is the sense of like, oh, we are coming together to do things that have a price tag attached often. And so the choices surrounding like what the activities we do are, do we do something that's free 99 or do we do something that is like an extravagant dinner? And, you know, and what are the different friends, you know, constraints or even like anxieties or feelings about that? I think that it actually is something that even if you don't talk about it, much like in romantic relationship, it's going to come to the fore because the assumption is you're sharing meals, you're sharing like social activities, you are maybe invited to the same weddings or birthday parties. All of that stuff is 
money conversations that you're not having overtly with friends that are still <laughs> that are still causing stress and strain if you don't address it overtly. Right. And I think that to clarify, I, I guess like what I really mean is that there is a way in friendship that you get away with not knowing the context in which people have or don't have money in friendship. Right. Right. Because you're like, you have to, you have like, you're going to spend it or not spend it. It's going to be a stressor or not a stressor. The classic example is the birthday dinner. Um, <laughs> you know, like there's dun, just, dun, dun. right. Like <laughs> things will always crop up. But I think that like in friendship, you can get away with not knowing the context of how your friends are doing financially, because unless you ask overtly and the person tells you overtly, there is no reason to have that information with each other. And also, like, people's financial situations are in flux all of the time. And so if you don't have that context, I feel that, like, especially with friends, it's hard to be, um, to be making, like, thoughtful decisions about each other if you don't know that that's a data point that you should be considering, for example, right? Right. Like, I think a lot about friends who have a lot of, um, like, school debt, for example, and, and how that is like a stressor that is always in the back of everybody's mind. And it's not something that comes up all of the time. Michael Arsenault, um, friend of the podcast, has like written a lot about this in the New York Times. And like he tweets a lot about it, about just like the stress of having a financial burden like that. It just makes me realize so much of how much we don't say to each other. There are all sorts of uh, like things that we do for each other or we want to do for each other that should be informed by financial conversations that we do or don't have. Well, it's interesting because like for me, I mean, I know you refer to yourself as like the impolite friend or whatever. And I, I feel I am also talking pretty frankly about money or asking about it with people who I'm really close to. And so like, for example, friends of mine who have recently had a kid or bought a house or just moved or just had like a career shakeup or just had a medical thing happen. I have that info about how that's affecting them financially because I am really close to the source. And I think where it gets harder for me is that like next layer out of friendship um, where I'm like, okay, like I see you around and I, I have like, you know, a lot of the surface level details about your life, but I'm not really checking in with you every single week. And so I don't, um, I don't have the same level of like, of info about what the implications of your, those big things are financially for you. And it's really interesting. Like just this morning, I, so I'm, I'm invited to a birthday dinner this week um, where I, I know the person whose birthday it is and like one other person who's going very well. And then there are, it's a small group, but like there's several other people going who I've met and I know, but are not close friends. And I was thinking about this. There was a no gifts request um, but I know this person is really invested in like immigrants' rights. And so I was like, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a donation toward um, someone else getting their like DACA paperwork renewed as like a gift for this person's birthday. And I mentioned to the other close friend I'm going with who I happen to know could probably afford to like, you know, meet me halfway on the cost of something like that. And she was like, yes, let's do it. Great idea. And I had this debate about like, do I email the group of like uh, people who I don't know as well and say, hey, we're doing this. Do you want to get in on it? Because I'm like, you know, I don't know. I had this whole a whole debate about like whether I should just say, let's go four ways, which I didn't end up saying. 
thing. And instead I just sent the link and it was like, we're donating here. But it was a very real question where I was like, oh, I could breach this directly because I was really close to one person and the Mm -hmm. other people I'm like, maybe, maybe like splitting the group dinner is where they're at financially. And now they're going to feel pressured by my email being like, this is what I did. And I just like, it's, it, it really is a, is a thing that, um, comes up unexpectedly like you know I wasn't really thinking about it at at the outset as something that had to do with the level of my relationship with these people and money and it very quickly became that right like I think that's such a good example because it like it encapsulates like a lot of stressors right yeah and I think the place that I fall on this is just maximum transparency and also no pressure like I my my stance usually on like Hi, I, the way that I like to share what's up with, uh, you know, like where I'm at financially or when I ask people for things, it's because I just want to have um, enough information that anybody can make decisions according to their own values, right? So for like your birthday dinner example, I, I would probably be like, hi, like, you know, I'm like, no pressure. This is what I am doing. If some of you like need ideas for what you want to do. And if you want to join me, join me. Everything is always opt in. That is legit how my email was worded. (laughs) I'm glad we are on the same page. Yeah, Yeah. I was like, I think that like the wording and the intention really matters. Right. And so it's, you're not like, hi, like this is the present. I, you know, like you're not uh, imposing yourself as much as you were like, because I always err on the side of like, if I'm nervous about something, I am now old enough that I know that someone else is nervous about that same thing. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Where I'm like, oh, great. Like, this is part of being an adult. Just say out loud the thing that you're nervous about because somebody else will breathe a sigh of relief with you, which is always very exciting to me. It's also just like very telling how people receive this kind of information generally. If talking about money is the thing that like stresses your relationship out, my sense is that like that relationship was going to be stressed already. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's like if there are things that like you just can't say, then you just can't say them. And every like friend group has their own norms, right? Like I don't think that all of this like applies to everyone. And I'm thinking about a talk that I gave about ambition at the wing in LA recently where this um, a woman said, and I'm like not like I'm. I just remember like snippets of what she said, but I just remember that it stayed so much with me about how like with her close friends, they essentially have like a financial date, like a check-in that they have. And they really- That is blowing my mind. I know, but they set it up as like a (laughs) informed consent is important for everyone. Enthusiastic consent is important. So they set an intention. They set boundaries around like what you can and cannot talk about, like like what the triggers are and all of these things. And I just really remember thinking about that like, wow, this is such an intentional way of saying, we are close friends, we're a community. This is a thing that is stressful for us and let's talk about it. Somebody else like at one of these talks pointed out once that like with their coworkers, so not necessarily friends, but they're obviously people that they were friendly with, that the way that they, um, they all, you know, they all kind of like worked at the same company and they wanted to find out like what their salaries were essentially. But that's like a, you know, that's like a hard thing to talk about. And so what they did is that they all, uh, they all wrote their number down and put it in a bowl mm-hmm. and then picked out and then looked at them on the table. And it was like, oh, this is the range of what it is that everyone oh, wow. is making. That's such a good idea. I thought that was such a good idea in a non-confrontational, like, you know, like tension diffusing kind of way of doing that. And it just like, that has also really stuck with me. Whereas like, even for someone like me who like, you know, I'm like, I tend to be impolite and there's not a lot that I'm afraid of. I don't do this with everyone. And there's obviously like lines and boundaries and you can't be like asking people about money if you're not like accountable to them. But I think that like, if you're generally like friendly with people, your friends are, and this is something that you think will help your relationship grow, 
there are ways to do it where you all acknowledge like, hi, this is awkward and weird, but we're doing it because we're all trying to grow together. Right. And if you acknowledge the feelings component, like right out of the gate, I think it's also helpful, right? Where it's like, if you can just say, we're doing a thing that is really emotional and loaded, even though it seems like we're doing like something that is like spreadsheet practical, it is... I think more helpful because then it like it allows people to feel the feelings they're going to feel about how sensitive the conversation really is. Right. And I have to say, too, that like something that's been very instructive for me have been like moments where I was very broke or like very like financially strained saying out loud that I couldn't afford something and like bucking that pressure. It really taught me a lot about like releasing shame about money and asking for help or at least like asking for relief. And I think it teaches you a lot about like who your friends are. Like I have someone who I like told them that I couldn't afford to be their bridesmaid because at the time I like fully couldn't. I was like, this is too much money. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they got really upset and we're no longer friends. You know, oh, I'm like very now, telling. <laughs> right. That's like very telling. And now that I'm like in a different financial situation, I'm like, that's insane that that's what happened. You know, wow, what I mean? that person and is then, missing out on so many good smells right now. <laughs> right. I'm like, you know what? I was like, listen, I didn't have money then. But now like we have Beyonce to get money. Like, you know what I'm saying? And then there are also people where like when I got vulnerable enough and said like, hey, actually, like I can't afford this trip or I cannot afford dinner. Like either they bought me the dinner or they took me on the trip with them or they said like, actually, let's just stay in and watch TV. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a firm believer that like with your close friends, there's a minimum of honesty about this it kind of all evens out in the grand scheme of your friendship. Like I'm not, who, who, who was the last person I bought dinner to? Who's the next person I have to buy dinner for? Like I don't really keep track, but like when, when I can, I try to be generous because people have been very generous with me. I love that. The overall, like not keeping score, but kind of like emotionally wanting things to be fair. Right. making me feel a lot of things money conversations are feelings conversations you're totally right well and on that note we asked all of you listeners for your questions about money particularly as it relates to feelings and relationships and gina took some of those questions to Rima mccrace who hosts the podcast this is uncomfortable from marketplace which like lol this is uncomfortable <laughs> and um so here's gina and Rima with some answers to your questions Rima Crace, thanks so much for being on Call Your Girlfriend. Thanks, Gina. I'm excited to be here. I'm good. Good, good. Yeah. We're going to talk about money. Yes, I'm excited. Yes. Let's talk about it. This first voicemail is from Rachel in New York. And I'd like to ask about money and relationships. Like many of my friends, I grew up with divorced parents, and finances played a very large role in their divorce. 
Now that I'm older, I have no idea what roles money should and shouldn't play in a healthy relationship with another person. So I'd love to know how you think financial matters can be navigated between partners as romantic relationships become more serious. Thank you so much. Bye. Ooh, okay. Rachel, this is a big question. It's a big question. <laughs> well, it's interesting she said that her parents got divorced over money. Um, like money is actually like the number one reason for divorces, which is wild when I first heard that stat. And it's just a big source of tension in relationships in general. This is something I think a lot of people are trying to figure out, like how to bring up money in relationships, something I've been struggling with too. And so I think it depends on like which stage of the relationship you're in, right? Like if you're dating, um, maybe the conversation is more in line of like, is it within your budget to go out for dinner? Who's going to split the check when we go out or how are we going to split it? But if you're in a more serious relationship, I think the conversation shifts a little bit. I think the number one thing is just to be like honest and open and like approach conversations without judgment. You know, don't go to your partner and be like, how much do you have in debt? Why are you in debt? Some of the more successful conversations end up being when the people in the partnership like strip the emotion out of the conversation that they're having and just like really approach it as a very practical thing. Like I talked with this one couple where they will like literally set aside time, put it on their calendars. They'll go outside of their home to like, you know, you know a restaurant or a coffee shop and have like a very intentional conversation about money. Um, like but, a business meeting. Yeah, it actually is like a business meeting, which makes a lot of sense. Like when I first heard it, I was like, that's not sexy or romantic. Like, <laughs> but it's so funny. In the first episode of my podcast, I talk with this one couple and they make like a whole ritual out of it. So they'll literally on a Friday or Saturday night, they'll sit in their living room and they'll put in like R&B music. They'll like light a candle and they'll pull out their laptops and go over their spreadsheets. And it's like a thing that they just like love to do. And it's made it easier for them to talk about money. They they bring the sexy intentionally. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so... No two people in any relationship are going to agree on everything, and especially when it comes to money. It all comes down to compromises and just like making financial decisions together. And I think if you're overwhelmed by it, one way to approach the conversation is to think about it in terms of goals. Like that's a more positive way to frame it. And then I think like once you sit down, like I don't think you should be afraid to share the details. Like how much do you make? How much debt do you have? How much do you have in savings? What's your credit score? And also just like talk about your money beliefs. Like I think that's something that I'm still trying to figure out too. Um, like, how do you feel about money? Like, how did money come up for you and your family? Did your parents talk with you about it? What's your relationship? Because I think once you understand your own relationship, I mean, it's almost like, you know how they say in a, in a relationship, like you should know yourself before you get in a relationship, you know, mm-hmm. that cliche. Yeah, um, the RuPaul. Yeah. If you don't love yourself, how the hell are you going to love anyone else? <laughs> like, okay, right? Yeah. yeah. But um, I, there you know, might be some truth in it when it comes to money. Like, I think you need to understand what your sort of financial goals are like what are what are your deal breakers what are you willing to compromise on and i think once you have a healthier relationship with money it'll be easier to have that conversation with someone totally people have different styles around Mm. how they think about their money how they spend it how they want to allocate their budgets and this is an area where you can potentially grow together Mm. so it's both like having your own autonomy because i think it is very important for women in particular to have like our own path to financial security Mm -hmm. you know part of what rima is alluding to about that money can cause people to break up it can also cause people to stay in relationships Mm -hmm. that don't serve them Mm -hmm. so i think it does make sense to like 
like have a little bit by bit plan to get your money right like we're always saying around here but it is an area where you and your partner can grow together and you get to make some choices so Mm -hmm. I think asking those questions that are kind of tough but in a sensitive way and also like if you're not kinky for spreadsheets like that's (laughs) fine like maybe your partner isn't either right it's like you'll either develop balance of this is more you know one person can be more meticulous about that just like one person is more meticulous about how they load the dishwasher avoiding money entirely is definitely the biggest sin in this area yeah yeah don't do that as a child of divorce I also want to chime in and say too that like you may be used to navigating different frames from each of your family environments right I don't know if you spend time equally with each of your parents but when families do change over money it becomes much more starkly clear who has what beliefs Mm. and like it may take some time to disentangle like what you were taught from what you want for yourself but on the other hand you kind of have a cheat sheet to see that everybody does this differently and that's like a superpower that you can bring into your relationships being a child of divorce isn't only a liability that's such a great point yeah I think it's important to make the decisions together um, so you don't feel like you know, it creates an unequal like power dynamic or you know what's going on. Um, And like having the conversation of like, if it is serious, do you want to have a joint account or you can have separate accounts? Should there be like a designated CFO of the family um, or of the partnership? Whatever like makes sense for you all to reduce the potential for arguments. This next question comes from Lucia in Massachusetts. I'm calling to ask what you two think about um, paid internships and practicums. I just completed 400 hours of an unpaid practicum uh, to become a licensed teacher in my state, and I just graduated, and now I'm in thousands of dollars worth of debt. Uh, for many people, this kind of internship or practicum is impossible to do, and I think that connects a lot to the fact that people in the teaching profession are middle-class white people. So I'm just wondering what you two think about this. Yeah, that's so real. It's funny because I was actually having a conversation with my sister not too long ago. She's a special ed teacher, and she wants to advance in her career. And she sort of faced this a similar predicament where she was like, should I take on all of these unpaid hours, essentially, for something that could benefit her more down their line. In the end, she decided to do it. But it's like a thing that I think a lot of people struggle with um, because that obviously that came at a big cost for her and her family and her son. I've also done unpaid internships. <laughs> Maybe you have too. I have, yeah. Um, yeah, and it's, I don't. I feel like it's this paradoxical thing where, you know, it is a burden to take on, but it also is like very much a privilege to be able to make that kind of investment you know, I've had several friends who've had who've taken on unpaid internships and had to quit later on, um, or maybe they don't, you know, they haven't even been able to consider it. I think it's frustrating, at least for me personally, to think about all of the people who are shut off from those opportunities, many times people of color, people from low income backgrounds who like can't afford to take on an internship in a city like New York or DC, where a lot of the unpaid internships for certain industries are exist and especially like in industries like journalism and arts and politics like those are where a lot of the unpaid internships are and that's like where representation matters the most so it's like frustrating to think that a lot of people can't even like consider these opportunities because it just I mean how are they going to foot that bill if their parents can't do it and many times the average rent for like an apartment is the same as like a monthly mortgage payment <laughs> like 
I think people who've listened to the show a lot maybe know that I started in my started my career in radio first as an unpaid and then later as a paid intern and here we are sitting recording in the fabulous marketplace <laughs> recording studios thanks for lending them to yeah. us Rima this is a place that I got because my mom could let me move home and I didn't mm-hmm. have to pay rent in LA and that's where my career started oh, wow. so it's a really fucked up class dynamic that perpetuates itself through yeah. the existence of these internships if you are in a position to pay someone do so if you even if you work mm-hmm. for a nonprofit, if you're like we can take on an unpaid intern if they're genuinely a student and they're getting credit that matters for their degree maybe but even a small amount goes a long way yeah. and it means that your organization your company, your entity can play a role in giving opportunities to people who need them most and not creating barriers of access because of financial hardship. As an individual, this is a little bit like navigating capitalism where you're kind of like, it's the game that we're all playing. And so for Lucia, we really hear your dilemma here, your anxiety. And I think it's completely reasonable. And I feel like in many ways, like the unpaid internship is like the new entry level position, which makes it even more difficult to get your foot in the door in certain industries. So many of the internships require so much experience. And I do think that unpaid internships in a lot of ways end up disproportionately hurting women because like they're the ones who are more likely to think that they're not qualified for certain jobs and that they have to take an unpaid internship before they can get like, you know, before they can really get started in the industry. Right. We know that the more marginalized you are, the more that credentials matter, or at least our internal perceptions Mm -hmm. of how important credentials are. So if you don't think you're going to be taken seriously because of some factor or factors of your identity, it's very tempting to say like, well, I can always pull out my certificate, my degree. Mm -hmm. And that does go a long way. So you're not wrong in thinking that this could be really valuable. And if you're someone who's looking for a policy issue to take up, this is a great Mm -hmm. one to start in your state, in your community. If you're someone who's looking to help fund people, I think that this is also a great issue to consider, you know, how can you create buckets of money for people to access? Like the whole Rotary Club world doesn't exist anymore Mm -hmm. the same way it did to help like middle class white people go to college in the 70s and 80s. So maybe there's a new progressive version of that we could explore. Next caller is Anonymous. Hi there. Um, My question is about student debt and relationships. I'm so lucky I don't have student debt anymore. It's all paid off. Um, However, my partner has a lot of student debt and they feel a lot of anxiety and sadness. And neither of us have very much knowledge about, I think, how to deal with the extent of this debt. Uh, Sorry, debt. Neither of our families are super equipped to... um, help out with this information. So I think pointing me or us into the direction of like resources um, to help mitigate that would be very helpful. So her story is, uh, that's super common, right? Like being in a relationship where one person has debt and the other doesn't. Um, I've talked with a lot of couples who are in similar scenarios. And it sounds like you two are pretty committed. But I do think it's important before you decide how to tackle on the debt that you know that you're on board, too. I think you have to be honest with yourself and ask yourself, is the debt something that you're like emotionally and financially maybe even willing to take on? In terms of practical tips, it makes like, first of all, you just need to come up with a plan, right? Like it's going to be hard to 
make any progress if you don't have like a roadmap. Without a roadmap, it'll make it easier to maybe say yes to the dinner or to go on a trip without really recognizing where you are in terms of your finances. And it'll just make it easier to to sort of rein back the spending. Um, so in order to make that plan, I think you should get it, you know, you all should get a good handling of the debt, right? Make a list of all the debt, the the interest rates, the minimum payment, Get just like really understand how much you have. Um, and I think from there, there are two options, right? You just spend less or you make more money. That's going to be hard for a lot of people to make more money. So um, spending less, I think the first thing is just to make a budget, right? Track your spending, know what's going in and out. Like it's something I think everyone really should do, um, including myself. We're like, Me too. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think it'd be astonishing. You will surprise yourself, I think, if you go through and like really comb through your finances, because odds are you're probably going to find something that you can get rid of, whether it's like a high cell phone bill or like at least reduced, right? Or maybe you don't need that Hulu subscription um, if there are any redundancies. This isn't the latte factor, right? Like these are bigger ongoing things. That's true. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you'll just get a good sense of like where the money's going. And there are different ways to track that. Like Mint is an app that a lot of people use. Um, I know a lot of people also use youneedabudget.com. Um, those are good tools. To yeah, there's like a thriving Reddit world. Around oh my God, yeah. Budgeting. If you just type in Reddit and budgeting, and, the, and it's very organized too. These people are kinky for spreadsheets. They are. Yeah. Those, they definitely are. So um, if you are too, go check that out. Um, there are definitely like cheap ways to get access to budget spreadsheets instead of having to pay. But I do think it is good to just like make sense of your budget. And then there's also, when thinking about budgeting, there's like the 50-30-20 rule. Have you heard of that? No, what's that? Um, so 50% of your money goes to basic necessities to live. So like housing, electricity. And so 30% um, should go towards wants. So trips that you need to go on. Um, or dining out. Dining out. A new or, suit for work. Exactly. Yeah. And then 20% should go towards helping pay for debt and saving. Um, and so in another way, sometimes people look at it as like 80-20. But the idea is that like you're setting aside 20% of your budget. Um, to go towards helping that debt. And then there are a couple of ways to help pay down that debt. There's like a couple of methods. I don't know if you've heard of these, but it's like the snowball and the avalanche method. <laughs> <laughs> so the avalanche method, you essentially list all of your debts. You put the one with the highest interest rate at top, and then you work off. You work on paying off your debts with that goal in mind first. And then that way you have, you're basically, um, in the long term, you're paying less debt over time. And um, some people, I think this, some people call this the Dave Ramsey method. He's like obsessive yeah. about this. And the idea is that the thing that kills you is paying so much interest exactly. as it continues to balloon. So you sort of go in the highest interest to lowest exactly. and like focus all your attention. And this is really important too for people who have credit card debt. Mm -hmm. um, student debt tends to have lower interest rates on average. If you have government loans, private loans are pretty different. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, so that's the avalanche method. And then the snowball method, basically, you start with your lowest payment that you have to do. And that way, it's more of like a psychological win. So you're like, okay, got that done. And you're building momentum. And it makes it easier to tackle it on. You know, and you can Google and look into more of those sort of methods. But I think it's a helpful way to think about it. There are different ways to just like automatically save money. Like I used to use Digit. I know it, it was great. Basically, like siphons money out of your checking account and puts them into a savings account, so you don't have to think about it. And it's like rounding up cents and a yeah. couple dollars here and there, exactly. right? Or you, or you can set the targets for it, right? So you don't feel it as much. And then also, you know, I've talked with people who've just like found more creative ways. Like I know that there's the envelope method, um, where 
you essentially figure out what your allowance should be for the week and then you get an envelope and you put that money in there. We know that like when you have to pay with cash, it's more painful and you're just like more cognizant of it. And so like literally people just like get rid of their credit cards if they can, like out of sight, out of mind. And so that is also one method if you just want to go use cash. Yeah. Um, And I feel like underneath everything you're saying is kind of back to the emotional piece of this that the listener raised, which is like, you have to face it. And that, that can be the hardest thing of all. And so these tactics and tools are nice ways to sort of like have a frame or almost have a game, like gamify Mm -hmm. it. Because unfortunately, again, like capitalism is a game and like we're just the ones stuck playing but in the meantime how can you make the enormity a little bit smaller Mm -hmm. and chip away at one small piece at a time for your partner they may be having a hard time with sort of like the identity of being in debt Mm -hmm. and like you may not be able to guide them to some more positive vision of themselves, but ultimately that's going to be really important that their value as a human and what they can bring to society isn't just this number on a ledger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's important, you know, if this is a serious committed relationship that you signal to them that like you're in it, right? Like you're helping them and you can decide between the two of you if that means like financially too, but at least emotionally, um, there's no judgment there. It sounds like you're in a committed relationship, but if you're not and it's something that is weighing on you, like I think it's important to really be honest with yourself too and figure out like what role can you play in this relationship and is this something that you are able to manage with them? Totally. I was going to say in the same way that you need to have kind of a plan or a system or a more bounded way of approaching the financial aspect of this, you may also need some boundaries about the anxiety, the stress that this is causing your partner, they're going to need to find some outlets that are not dumping on you. And if this is such the totalizing emotion of your relationship, you might consider whether that's okay for you. You'll figure out what's right for you. One thing I would say is if they're really struggling and hitting a place of anxiety or depression, things that you should not cut out are things like therapy, if it's possible. There are other episodes where we've talked about tools for finding low-cost therapy you can use some of the apps. You can go to students who are working in this field who are getting their training, kind of mm-hmm. like we're talking about the internships before, right? <laughs> we're doing those, their practicums. Right. Yeah. Those folks are in training, having people to talk to and not having this be, as I said before, kind of like the only subject of your relationship, even though it feels so totalizing, is going to be really important for having kind of the emotional fortitude to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And if you do want more practical resources and um, maybe maybe are feeling overwhelmed and want to see a financial counselor, um, a good resource is the National Foundation for Credit Counseling, NFCC.org. They're a nonprofit, so it's a little bit more low cost, and you can find a local counselor in your area just as an option. Awesome. Good luck, listener. Yeah, good luck. Our next call is from Carrie in Minneapolis, who has two different questions. Here's the first one. Hi, Anne, Amina, and Gina. It's Carrie calling from Minneapolis. Two things that I have questions about constantly is how much money to save versus invest. If you have a 401 through your work, should you also get a Roth IRA or should you allocate that money towards a 
different type of diversified investment portfolios? Yeah, these are all very good and important questions that I've been trying to figure out too. So yeah, financial experts, it's seems to vary. Like most of them say three to six months is a re- generally a good rule of thumb. So you're, you're for your right. emergency savings. For an emergency savings. Um, and what is an emergency savings? So isn't it like what you spend each month, like your total everything, yeah. your rent, your car payment, mm-hmm. extras? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And there are emergency fund calculators. I was like playing with one the other day where you can put in everything and see how much money that would actually be and figure out what's reasonable for you and realistic. Like we're really bad at saving. Like there's studies that show like almost half of Americans don't have like $400 saved up for an emergency fund, which is very real, right? So just to put this into perspective that it is very hard to do these things. Um, and if you haven't yet, there's time to work on there this. There is time, exactly. Like don't feel overwhelmed by it. Think about just doing a rainy fund if you can. That's a little bit more manageable. That's two weeks to... Um, you generally, it's like two weeks of pay to $1,000. That'll just help cover any like unexpected things that come up. And it's good to have if you can. So when it comes to savings, I think it's important to look at like what, like I said, is reasonable for you. So if you can do minimum, that's great. If you can do six to nine months, that's great. I think the next step after that, you know, if you do have a, an employer that does set up a 401k for you, that's great. And you should be able, you should do that. And I think important thing to keep in mind is to max out the matching contribution if you can. Like, this is something that I've only learned recently and is so important. Like, that's just free money. Like, you're literally leaving money on the table if you don't do that. Match each dollar if you can. Um, And then I think after that, if you feel like you still do have savings, which it does sound like you do, what makes most sense is to consider a Roth IRA. It's something that I'm actually, like, and thinking about your uh, message I want to go do right away, too. It's really smart and easy if you can do it because it's basically, for people who don't know what a Roth IRA is, because I definitely didn't until, like, last year, it's a retirement account um, that you've already paid taxes on. So it's generally good for people earlier in their careers if they think they're going to make more money in life because your money is going to keep growing and, and you've already paid a lower tax rate on it if you do it now. I talked with someone actually who referred to it as like an emergency fund on steroids because unlike other retirement accounts, it's a place where you can actually pull money from if you really need to. Like you don't want to, but if you need to, you can. And compared to a 401k or other retirement accounts where there are big tax penalties for doing exactly. that, like you can lose 50% of the value if you have to pull it out early. Yeah, exactly. So it makes sense to consider a Roth IRA if you can. And then if you've got some left over, there's lots of different apps that can help you with investing. Some people like to go and buy their own Vanguard funds. Some people work with financial advisor. There's products like Robinhood that do the automated investing. So if you're in the happy camp of having too much money that you are looking to save, um, there's lots of fun avenues for you to explore. And I think like, you know, personally, this question really resonated for me because I do think oftentimes women, myself included, feel like they can't invest or they don't know how to invest and it just feels overwhelming. I saw this study the other day that basically said, growing up, girls are more likely to be taught how to save, whereas boys are more likely to taught how to invest. There was this survey that I saw, actually, I kind of want to pull it up because I thought it was really interesting. So it said that girls were more likely to be taught fiscal restraint growing up, while boys were more likely to be taught about building wealth. So for example, 61% of boys got a lesson from their parents on credit scores by the time they reached high school, compared to 46% of girls. Boys were also more likely to be taught how to pay taxes, um, more likely to be taught bank accounts, and more likely to be taught credit cards. 
and get an education on investing. So like early on, there's like this gap of knowledge that's happening. And when I read that, I couldn't help but think of like my own life. And my dad, he's a nurse, but he's super into stocks and investing. And he's never taught me anything. And I've also never asked to be fair. But I actually, I was just texting with my brother who's 17. So there's a big age gap between us. And I was like, hey, I'm, I'm curious, like, has Bob ever taught you anything about investing? He was like, oh, yeah, we're actually sitting down next week and I'm going to download Robinhood and go through like some basic stock uh, options and try to figure out, like get my head wrapped around that. So it's just like seeing the own disparity in my, in my own family. How did you wild. feel about that? It honestly made me sad. <laughs> I was happy that my brother was getting that like information early on. But yeah, it made me sad. Um, And I don't blame my dad. I mean, I think so much of it is just the way we're like, you know, I never approached him, but also I'm sure he assumed that maybe I didn't want to or that I, you know, it felt overwhelming to me, which it did. But yeah, it's just wild that the discrepancies just even my in my family, right? Like the first real conversation I ever had with my dad about money, like truly real was for this podcast for This Is Uncomfortable where I sat down with him and I was like, hey, Baba, how much like money do you think I should have saved by now? And he was like, oh, like probably like 100,000, which I was like, what? That's crazy. <laughs> like, the, no, like there's no world in which that would happen. But it's just funny. Like it blew my mind to think like how far off my dad and I are in terms of like financial goals and what's realistic. And like my dad's not like a wealthy man. Like, you know, he's a nurse, but just thinking about his expectations of me versus mine and and how much is unstated. Right, exactly. And um, and that is true even among friends too, right? Not even mm-hmm. in families. And so I do think that women in general um, are less likely to receive this education. And I think because of the way that we're conditioned and taught to put family first, for example, studies have shown that we're less likely to take risks and more likely to prepare for like families or for the fact that we do live longer and outlive our, our spouses. And that affects like how much money we're going to set aside um, and how we're going to handle it. You know, as we grow up, we are used to seeing images and portrayals in media and in our own lives of women being incapable of making financial decisions. Hmm. And so it just feeds into our own perceptions of our ability. Oh, and something else that was interesting, um, that's just like a good point to make, is that like the gender pay gap exists, right? <laughs> right. Like the average woman earns like 80% of the average man. Um, And that's the average white woman and white man, right? And it goes exponentially, right? Like Latinas are the lowest paid of any category. Mm -hmm. And so that obviously affects how much you're going to also invest and how much you're going to have for retirement and um, in savings. And so like we see that gap perpetuate even in, in that regard too. So all to say that if like this listener, you do have some cash to invest, get it, get yeah, rich. get that money. Get and it. And teach, teach all of your friends. Yes. <laughs> um, including me. Yeah. And me. <laughs> and Carrie from Minneapolis had another question that we were also interested in. So let's listen to that. In terms of how money affects my relationship, me and my partner both um, really like to take each other out on dates, split costs. We've discussed 50-50, but I'm really unsure how to approach that when we both earn different amounts. She's in school right now, has some loans, has a different type of job than me, and I never know how to approach a conversation when who pays for what and when, and should it be 50-50 or more like a percentage of your income. So anyway, thanks so much for the work you guys do. See you on the internet. Bye. 
Okay, first of all, I think it's very cute that you and your partner like to take each other on dates. <laughs> yeah. Quel romantique. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, I mean, I totally get that question. I mean, I think um, there are a lot of people who are in that predicament, right? I have a lot of friends who... Um, one person is making a lot of money and the other person isn't, or in your case, one person's making money and the other person's in debt. Um, and I think to some degree, it's not so much a personal finance question as it, as much as it is like a relationship question, right? Like you can ask so many couples and they'll have different ways of handling it. Many people like doing 50-50. Other people are very adamant about doing a percentage of your income. So I would definitely suggest talk with your partner about it. And if you do foresee like a serious relationship, you want to make sure that there isn't any resentment that builds or that any arrangement doesn't end up impacting the power dynamic in a way that feels unfair to her. Um, You know, I talked with this one couple and they basically decided to split everything based on their income. It's not perfect science. I think some people are a little bit vague with it and others are more strict about it. Um, But I talked with this one couple. They were pretty strict about it. Their whole thing was like, we may not be equals on paper, but we want to feel like there's a sense of equity in the relationship. And so that was a thing that they came up with. But like I said, it, it really is up to you. Like um, there are all these different and creative ways that couples come up with to feel like there is fairness in the relationship. Like I talked with another couple and prefacing this that it sounds very backwards, but um, they basically had a huge argument or they kept having this recurring argument over who was going to do the dishes. And um, basically... In the end, the woman decided to pay the man $50 or $75 a month to do the dishes um, each month. And that you was. You better like, be scrubbing the I floors, know, right? too. My I God. know. But it was like, <laughs> it's a ridiculous situation. But um, it was so that he would do the dishes on her timeline because he was doing them before, but it wasn't necessarily on her timeline. And she's the one who cooks. Anyway. We don't need to get into the particulars of their relationship. But you're saying it works for them. It works for them, even if it sounds archaic, and it is. Um, <laughs> but like for them, that that's what feels the most fair. And mm-hmm. so I think it's just important to have a conversation where, you know, you decide an arrangement where it doesn't fuck up the power dynamic and build resentment. It's kind of not unlike different couples' bedroom activities, right? Like, Mm. what's great for someone else might be gross to you, but it's it's hard to know. (laughs) And it kind of takes that navigation together. I also think it's worth keeping in mind, like, I think this is a nice conversation to raise with your partner and leave some room for the fact that for her, there may be something that's a nice gesture to also be able to take you out because people do have such emotional attachments to money. Mm -hmm. And I think the kind of ritual or like the gift giving quality or like ways of expressing generosity can be very deeply felt as like markers of identity. Mm -hmm. And so if that for her is like the special treat is if that's the thing that gets her through to that final, maybe figure something out where, okay, if we're going to go out, you know, three times this month, she pays for one of them or, you know, you cover something that's more expensive. But I love what Rima said about equity versus equality, Mm -hmm. right? That splitting things 50-50 sounds like it's like, yeah, there's equality. It's same, same, but it may not be sort of just or like fully. um, Yeah, I'll leave it there. Um, So there's lots of different ways to do it. And good luck uh, having a cool combo with your partner about this. Mm -hmm. Rima, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Where can people find you? Yeah, so you can uh, listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find me on Twitter at Rima Chris. And spell it for the people. So it's R-E-E-M as in Mary A and then K-H-R-A. 
S. Great. Yes. Let's talk about money all the time. Money, feelings, feelings about money. Like, yes. <laughs> girl, girl. I love this. I love this. Maximum transparency. Ugh. All right. I'll see you in your banking app. <laughs> um, I'll see you at the bank, boo-boo. We do have to go to the bank, actually. So <laughs> It is true. We are in business together. Actually, like, that is the thing that really has, like, underscored the importance for me of being in business with friends is, like, how open we can be with each other about, like, the, the way that the work we do collectively is playing into our individual finances. That is, like, a total side note, but... Dang, I will see you at the bank. <laughs> I know, see you at the bank. I need a new computer, Anne. I need, um, there's some really fancy socks I've been into. I'll send you the link. We have like, a layaway th- program. <laughs> I know. Thanks for being my friend. You're the best. <laughs> new I could count on you. <laughs> you can find us many places on the internet, callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your favorite platforms. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. You can call us back. You can leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf, where Sophie Carter-Khan does all of our social. Our associate producer is Jordan Bailey, and this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac.